Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Hello. Jenna Ipcar. Hello. And our special guest, Frank Santo Padre. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Frank is the co-host of uh, my favorite movie and TV podcast, Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. Great to have you, man. Aren't you? I appreciate that. And thanks for your patience. Yeah, Did no I, problem. Should I tell all your listeners that I drove you crazy for the last half hour trying to figure out Skype on my end? Yeah, we had a little bit trouble with Skype, so uh, us mentioning Skype is definitely not a plug for it. We're uh, <laughs> a little, little annoyed with them <laughs> at the moment. Well, th- thank you all for your patience. Yeah, and no problem. For, thanks for the invite. So Frank is here because you mentioned a little while back on the Amazing Colossal podcast that you had been, you know, just by chance watching a bunch of films from 1979. And uh, here, sort of yeah. yeah, here on the show, we, we love tackling uh, movies by the year that they came out and doing, doing episodes on that. So we thought might as well have you on do, do a 1979 one. Very interesting year in film. Yeah, I kind of stumbled into that, you know. Uh, I mean, nineteen film years like nineteen thirty nine obviously have that reputation, right? Uh, that pe- people already know about. I, I had, uh, of course, we all love films of the seventies, but I never realized that seventy nine was such a was such a landmark year until I actually started doing a little research on the side for the podcast. And then you see that Apocalypse Now and Alien and Mad Max and being there and and uh, some and the Warriors and Manhattan and, and and all that jazz, which I talked about on somebody else's podcast, and and just so many of them. I mean, even things like Life of Brian and the Jerk. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, and the Black Stallion and and Tim Drum and Injustice for All, and I mean, it's just a time after time, a, a movie I talked about on the show. And going oh, I love time island. after time. Yeah, me too. Of course, the number one movie of the year, Kramer versus Kramer, which I think a lot of right. people would be surprised by, given that it's Apocalypse Now, Alien, Rocky Two, you know, Amityville Horror, all these big movies that really, you know, dwarf them. That was twenty million dollars more in a box office than than any of those. You look at two through six, and they're all around the eighties, and you look at Kramer versus Kramer, and it's up in like the hundred million range. Yeah, and it Isn't launched. It launched Meryl Streep immediately. Yeah, she right. went from. She wasn't even supposed to be the lead in that movie. She was. Oh, was that so? I didn't know that. Yeah, she was. She was originally hired to be um, the girl that Hoffman has that one night stand with in the middle of okay. the movie. Uh, the one who he works with. But the right, right. I think what happened was the original pick for the um, wife had to leave the the production for something, some scheduling thing. So they bumped Streep up. And she's just like unreal in it. The, I didn't um, know that. That's good trivia. Yeah. That that yeah. breakup scene. I mean, I think her whole career is still off the, mm-hmm. the edifice. It shows of you that. how movie going has changed and how uh, that you don't have blockbusters. You would look at that list, as you said, you would think a movie like Alien sure. would would fall in there or, yeah. or even a block even a um, uh, an epic like Apocalypse Now. You know, when you, when you look at the, the top grossing films of the last four or five years or 10 years or 15, you'd never find a movie as small as Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, that's and what it, I was going to yeah. say is, you know, when's the last time we had a blockbuster that was just about like two people talking? <laughs> well, this this year was really kind of the end of that because this was um, the next year was the year Heaven's Gate bankrupted United Artists. And that was right. the end of the new Hollywood movement. That's right. So this really right. was, this was the apex of that. And everybody kind of expected Apocalypse Now to do that to United Artists this year. That's right. 
Well, you could look at 79 when people romanticize the 70s as the, you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys have read Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Oh, yeah. You know, there's there's so much romanticism about the about the 70s in American film and the inmates running the asylum. But it all comes kind of a, you know, to a screeching halt there with Heaven's Gate. Which I actually like that movie a lot. There's uh, a little lower yeah. long. Yeah. There's yeah. some beautiful imagery in that film, like some of the yeah. best I've ever seen. Yeah, he it was. It's unfairly maligned. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of these things. I talked about Ishtar on the show when we had Paul Williams on, right? And it's another movie that was crucified, and it's a little bloated, and it's not, you know, it's a little overwrought. But if you go and you watch it, I saw it recently on the big screen, and Elaine May came out and spoke about it. It's really not that bad, and it has funny things in it. It has a lot of quality things in it. I think in, uh, similar to the case of Heaven's Gate is the press got a hold of it. Yeah. And, you know, hey, hey, here's a story. You know, here's a story of a, of a, of a filmmaker who's struggling and the studio is angry. And the, you know, and they love that stuff. They love to, to just torpedo these films and, and, and build a story out of it. Right. There was a great Elaine May quote that was uh, something like, if all the people that hated Ishtar had seen it, I, w- I would be rich. It's a great <laughs> quote. And I'll tell you, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it, it, Paul Williams wrote some very funny and you know bad songs for it. Oh, those are great, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it was really, it got away from her. I think the involvement of Beatty, you know, uh, and, and his perfectionism was a problem, but she really designed it to be like a modern-day Hope and Crosby road movie. And, and when you go and you watch it, it kind of is, and, and they're both very funny in it, Hoffman in particular. And and you think, well, okay, it's not entirely successful, and there are a couple of wrong turns. But my God, I mean, you, you, when you walk out of it, you can't imagine her being vilified for it the way she was. And I think it's true of uh, Heaven's Gate. There are those movies where, like, if you didn't know the reputation whatsoever and you just saw them, you, you wouldn't go immediately to that place of, like, oh, my God, that was awful. Like, even if you didn't particularly like it that much, you wouldn't assume that it was it was so hated and so vilified. Well, yeah. you can you can still see the same um, media approach to these movies in um, what happened when Fantastic Four came out. Yeah, and, well, the Lone Ranger. Yeah, and they yeah, just they, pounced on the directors. They love it. I mean, it's because it's good. Makes good press. Yeah, all this you stuff know. about how like Josh Trank was like losing his mind the whole time and everything, and it's who it really knows the movie is like two weeks old. You, you, there's no way to know that about it. Right. They killed Coppola too when Coppola went rogue and was making movies with that with Zoetrope, American yeah. Zoetrope, like one from the heart and, and and they buried him too. I mean, it's like they, they love they and, and Chimino, I, I don't know that much about him. My suspicion is that perhaps he wasn't as nice to people as he should have been or, or, or the early success of the deer hunter went to his head because they were really lying in wait for him. He also spent ridiculously like Heaven's Gate it is, I think, a very good movie, but it should not have cost as much as it did because there's stories about, like, at one point he wanted one of the street sets to for the street to be a little wider. So um, he told them to knock the whole thing down and build it from scratch. And then the production designer was like, well, why don't we knock down half of it and then just build the other half a little further away? And he was like, no, nah, just knock it all down and start over. So, like, he really... <laughs> there were excesses. Yeah, he, he, needed, yeah I... he needed a producer. <laughs> I agree with you. It's a beautiful looking film. Yeah, that street scene in particular, if it's the one that I'm thinking of, that that's absolutely yeah. gorgeous. But we should bring that it back should, to that, uh, 79 real quick. Uh, th- this is me. That was yeah. Cody who said the street <laughs> scene was gorgeous. I, I just want to congratulate John on a side note for mentioning Frank Borzage as one of his favorite directors. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, which you don't see every day. 
I, he's, I think, one of the most underrated who ever lived. I don't know yeah, that well, there was anyone better at just human emotion than him. Seventh Heaven. Yeah. Well, we talked about on one of the uh, mini podcasts we do, the, the little show, the little um, sideshow we do on Thursdays, which we call Amazing Colossal Obsessions. Gilbert talked about the mortal storm. Oh, that is a wonderful one. So there you go. That, I think, oh. is was one of the first um, explicitly anti-Nazi American yes, films. correct. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> to bring it back to uh, Kramer versus Kramer real quick, one aspect mm-hmm. I adore about it is uh, the cinematography, which is Nestor Almendros, who's, of course, yeah. known for working with Truffaut and sure. Romer and um, his wonderful work on Days of Heaven. Days of Heaven, I was just going to say. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting because, you know, he's this guy that you associate with movies that aren't going to make that much money, but are going to be absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. And here he is with the, you know, the huge box office success. It's amazing that he has that in his filmography. And he, he wrote a book that I love called uh, Man with a Camera, which is actually out of print. But it's one of those ones where it's worth spending the 60 or $70 just to get it, where he goes through all of his films and just little anecdotes of how he accomplished the lighting. And, you know, he talks about on Days of Heaven, you know, the Teamsters were all really upset with him because all he was ever asking them was to take down lights. And they thought he was absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. It, it's a wonderful book. And he talks about Kramer just like it's any other, you know, movie that he worked on. He's it, clearly, you know, the box office success of it didn't go to his head whatsoever. You know, he doesn't devote any more time to it than he does to any of the other films in the book and it, it's That's a really good book is he no longer with us mr almendros i don't think he is yeah he passed away yeah day, days of heaven i know it's not 79 but I, I and i i bought the criterion disc but there's no no matter how well it's you know no matter how beautiful or gorgeous the disc is it's not going to be like seeing it in a theater and i remember seeing that thing in a theater and you know it's just boy talk about being transported to a different place mm. and it is it is it's breathtaking to look at if you if your listeners don't know that movie yeah that's uh that's one of those mandatory ones yeah. as far as visuals it's yes it's it, a slight story but it it it, re- it really uh it's a knockout it has as strong a case as any i think for being the most beautifully shot movie ever uh, yeah i would argue it yeah Though I, and one thing one thing i do hold against kramer versus kramer is that uh <laughs> is that hoffman well, and I'm not much into awards, but Hoffman won the Best Actor award over Peter Sellers for being there. You would have given it to Sellers. I, you know, it was like to me, it was like a career capping performance, and he was at the, yeah. you know, of course. Well, I mean, in retrospect, no one knew he was going to die the next year. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> mm. I would have given it to Albert Brooks for <laughs> oh, <yeah>. real life. <laughs> That's a great performance. Yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> also his most like assholey performance. Yeah. That one. Yeah, I don't think he was nominated. <laughs> no, I don't think so at all, but he just, something about that performance always got me. I think it's just, I think it's hard to do deadpan that well. It's funny, and then Hoffman gives a magnificent performance three years later in Tootsie, oh, where yeah. he's playing two characters, and then he loses that one. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's no, there's no justice. No. Nope. I, I, I had a talk, talked about being there on the show, uh, one of my favorite films from 79. And, and, yeah, uh, me too. Oh, isn't it wonderful? It's wonderful. I, you know, actually, I think being there and all that jazz, you know, both is what you mentioned came out that year are, are very similar in a way that they're both these almost two biopics in a way. Because Peter way. Sellers, you know, came out and said that being there was, you know, that was him, you know, like that was the, the truest movie to who he was as a person. Yeah. 
I think he he was involved almost from the beginning. If I know if I know the the story of that film correctly, it was a novel by Jerzy Kaczynski, and I think he wanted to play that part. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't. He was he was a clown. I mean, he was making making the pan, all those Panther sequels. At, at that point in, the, in his career, I don't think he, anybody, you know, Murder by Death, and all, I don't think anybody considered him a serious actor anymore. Which is such a shame because Peter Sellers, he's one of those guys. He's so goddamn funny. But like, it's like at the earliest part of his career, you know, doing all the Goonies stuff was was so good. And then he made all these movies that just aged terribly, whether or not they they were funny at the time. I, uh, you know, yeah. I've, I've watched a lot of them and they're mostly terrible. It's the curse of a lot of 60s comedians. But then you see him in like Lolita or something and he's absolutely yeah. amazing, you know. Or yeah, even exactly. Strangelove. Strangelove, of course, yeah. yeah. When, when forced to act and not just, and not just yeah. kind of uh, coast and, and, and take the paycheck, which he was guilty of, certainly in the 70s. And, and and I just said uh, because I love him personally, and I love the you know I uh, I love that film, I love the story, but uh, uh, it's hard it's hard to find fault with Kramer versus Kramer. I think, but imagine that I mean all three of those films just in one year. Yeah, and then I mean I was talking earlier about how um, Days of Heaven has a strong claim to being the most beautiful movie ever made, and then in '79, two others with that exact claim. You have Alien and Apocalypse Now, which are like. And actually, the Black Stallion also like three of just the most. That's a beautiful film. Yeah, I should bring I should bring the Black Stallion up on the show. And yeah. being there too is is gorgeous. The cinematography yeah. in that, especially right at the beginning, all that natural light coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very very beautiful movie. Al yeah. Ashby, uh, one of the one of the under uh, underrated or at least under discussed directors of the seventies, and he had quite a run. Agreed. Hal Ashby, I mean, I feel like I, you know, there's some weird thing that's happening with Hal Ashby now where, and, and I'm looking at John right now. Yeah, we just had a conversation about this not too long ago. It's just that, you know, everyone, everyone now loves uh, Harold and Maude as a sort of, you know, cult hit. And I love Harold and Maude. It's a completely fantastic film. But there's this weird thing where people are calling it like it's quirky and it's fun. Like, no, <laughs> it's yeah, not, you know, I, like it's, it's funny and it's depressing, but it's interesting. It has depth. It, it's a, it's a great little film that I think gets sort of glossed over as maybe like the image of them riding with a tree in the back of the car, you know, like there, there's something, well, I don't know. It's pretty dark. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he was, he, he was like a counterculture filmmaker working in the system, making movies like Shampoo and Harold and Maude and The Last Detail, which is pretty subversive. Yeah, I and, love and the, the Last Detail. detail. About the last detail. The That's landlord. always been my favorite, Last Detail. Yeah, there's so many. And of course, he came to a bad end. We I talked about him on the show. Being there is interesting in the context that I gave it on our show was that it's, you know, to me, it's the story of three uh, geniuses who all died young. Kaczynski, who wrote the novel. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And and the screenplay, Ashby and Sellers. Uh, None of them lived to to 50, I don't think. Yeah, it's like Rebel Without a Cause or something. 55, yeah. Yeah, three tragic stories, but a a, a film that just, uh, one of those movies you could put in now and it's, oh, look at this, how timely it still is. Yeah, and also the cinematographer for that, by the way, Caleb Deschanel, which is uh, Zoe Deschanel's. Is it really? Um, dad, yeah. Yeah, did he not shoot the Black Stallion as well? I yeah, think? he did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. Black Stallion is. Um, I I never understood why that isn't a more famous movie because it's it's such a uh, such a success on all these cylinders and in all these genres where there's like not a lot of good movies. Like there aren't very many good shipwreck movies. And there aren't very many good, like, horse racing movies. Mm-hmm. And there aren't very many good, you know, like, period pieces from the Depression. 
and you have this one that's just like the maybe the only really successful version of all those things. And it kind of I don't know why, but it, it feels um, it feels like it slips through the cracks a lot now. And Look, was that not Coppola's company, or yeah. Coppola was an executive producer yeah. on that? Yeah, Coppola was EP, which I can't believe he split that while he was doing Apocalypse Now, but... Yeah, he was busy. What's funny is when you look at it, some of, the, like, the light feels like the light in Apocalypse Now a lot. There's a lot of that, especially after the, the restoration of Apocalypse Now, that, like, very orange sunlight over, like, broad fields... That, yeah, it's a pretty. It was a Carol Ballard was the director. I'm I'm trying to search my memory. Yeah, it's a pretty film to look at. I always forgot. For years, I thought Coppola directed it, but um, no, no, he no, just I think produced he was still it. In the jungle. Yeah, yeah, he was still disappeared in the Philippines. Great and Criterion Arthur, Blu-ray of that just recently too. By the way, oh really? Black yeah. Stallion, oh, real? Yeah. Of uh, uh, Black Stallion. Mm-hmm. Oh, I better find that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, you look at the films, even if you just punch into uh, into Wikipedia, if you just put in seven, 1979 in film, I'm looking at, you know, Breaking Away, yeah. Justice for All, uh, Norma Ray, uh, Quadrophenia, I think one of you guys mentioned, was it Jenna that said she was a fan of Ken Russell? Oh yeah, I love Ken Russell, and Quadrophenia is great. Uh, well, China Syndrome, The Electric oh, I love the China a Syndrome. Romance, a little romance, a sweet film, Tess, Polanski made Tess that year. Which also has a great criterion. Yeah, and also very beautiful movie. And it seems like this is a year, like if you love stunning, stunningly beautiful films, you you could really just sit down with 1979 and watch a whole bunch of those. It's a good place to start. I'd love to talk about The Jerk and Life of Brian, which I think are two, the, easily the two best comedies that ever came out. <laughs> <laughs> Not to, not to be hyperbolic about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, Life of Brian, I honestly would, would nominate for, for best comedy. Uh, like, that movie, it works on every goddamn level. And it's their and most it's coherent so movie. it's ambitious, too. Exactly. And they I got into that. so much trouble for it. And it's so worth it. And it's still, it, it holds up. It's still funny today. Like, you know, sometimes you get those movies that were controver- uh, controversial back in the day. And then you look at them now and you're like, that's nothing. Like... This one, okay, maybe a little less controversial, but still is bitingly funny. Yeah, still okay. impactful for sure. Well, they're funny also because they were all such great historians. I think in particular, was it Cleese? One of them was like very historically minded. So their historical comedies are also like incredibly accurate relative oh, to the Jones, rest of the yeah. stuff. I mean, he was ripping, ripping yarns and those stuff that Terry Jones made. Yeah, you know that—that's the ones for me. That's sort of the state of grace. You know, it that, where I mean, they—they they were caught at just the right time in their careers. They didn't have—they didn't have any money to make Holy Grail. You know, and by the yeah. time they get to Meaning of Life, it's—they're—they're they're kind of splintered and doing their own thing and going in their own direction. Not really a group anymore, and getting back together for the money. But Life of Brian is boom. That's it. They're all at the right age. They're all at the height of their powers and everything clicks. Yeah, it's exile on Main Street. And I mean, how rare is it to find like, you know, a sharp, fierce, intelligent, political, religious satire that you, you know, is, is absolutely laugh out loud funny. And then there's still jokes about like biggest dickus in there. Hmm. So it's like <laughs> right. you can joke, you can laugh at, at any level of that movie that you That's can right. watch it, you know, going in there expecting something like intelligent or like waiting for like fart jokes. You got both. <laughs> they play to the highbrow and they play to the lowbrow. Especially, I mean, that scene of, of um, Brian coming out naked, you know, and, and opening the windows and there's a whole crowd of people standing there, you know, watching him, waiting yeah. for his word. You know, that, that's it. That whole scene, like, uh, sums up the whole film and what's so funny about it. You know, like, we're all individuals. We are all individuals. Like, <laughs> so good. And then The Jerk is absolutely hilarious. I mean, I think that's my favorite Steve Martin movie. 
Oh yeah, no question for me. You also you had know, Muppet movies. I haven't seen Life of uh, Life of Brian in a number of years, and now you're making me want to go uh, grab. Uh, I think there's a it holds up. It holds up. That. I'm sure it does. And, I, and, I, and how audacious it was. I mean, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm hard pressed now to even think about a mainstream movie that's a religious satire. I guess dogma, but that was kind of small potatoes. Uh, that 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 filmmakers or a studio would even would even make that film today. Oh sure. Well, I mean, I definitely it got picketed and and you know banned. Oh, I remember. And I remember the other yeah, their um their uh, poster. I think said banned in Norway. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I remember when Scorsese caught hell for Last Temptation of Christ too. But I but I particularly remember the Life of Brian protests. And me, you know, Bill Maher made Religious a couple of years ago. But that's that's you know that's a little indie film. If you if you think about a mainstream movie satirizing religion to that degree, I can't even think of one. I mean, it, it's so it's such of its time. It's so much of its time. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of protests for dogma too. By the way, I remember those I remember. as well. Yeah, yeah. Of an era where so many of these movies are defined now by being things that nobody would make now, it didn't even occur to me that that one is probably like the premier. Nobody would ever make that now. Nobody almost would make that then. Oh, if you go back and you look at the 70s, there are lots of movies nobody would make anymore. There's a terrific, not 79, but there's a terrific Carl Reiner comedy I've talked about on the show called Where's Papa? Right, I've never yeah. heard of that. You guys, if you haven't seen it, find it. Yeah, my uh, dad tried to get me to watch that when I was like four or five years old, and it was oh. <laughs> totally over my head, and there I didn't understand any of it whatsoever. And A black comedy about <laughs> aging. A black yeah. comedy about a about a, a senility uh, uh, and 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 uh, and how America treats the elderly. I mean, you don't see these things, right? They're, 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 especially the comedies were thoughtful. To get back to the jerk, I mean, and there's a, there's a segue, Carl Reiner, right? <laughs> there yeah. you go. You know, I, my wife and I watch it, and I say, oh, it's just you know, this is a whole other thing. As Steve Martin became such a different person and a different performer and a different boy, it still holds up. Yeah, that cat juggling scene in particular. I mean, that's that's perfection. The opening the line, it's even it's great on so many levels. <laughs> and I read an interview with with Judd Apatow with him recently, and he said that he has trouble watching it now. Why? Which is a, not Judd does. Uh, Steve Martin has trouble watching it. Oh, which, which is sad. That is sad. Why? He's just not satisfied it's with it now. So long ago, it's, yeah. it's like he can't he can't put it in anymore. He's just he. I, I guess he's not. You know, like I said, he's he's so removed from it. I wonder yeah. how he feels about bringing down the house if he has that same reaction. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the rest of us can't watch that one. <laughs> you know the other uh, the other big you wouldn't be able to make that movie ever again, and probably shouldn't even have made it at the time. One for this year, which I almost completely forgot about. Caligula. Oh yeah. <laughs> It's you know, still... I want to get Malcolm McDowell on the show. I met him once. Oh, yeah? I, I'm desperate to get him on the show to talk about not only time after time, but also Caligula. Boy, what a fearless actor, man. Oh, yeah. Total commitment and just a complete lack of fear in any of these projects, you know? I love I love him. You should ask him about Oh Lucky Man for me, please. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, Oh Lucky Man. I just recorded Oh Lucky Man on, uh, on uh, the DVR. It's on, um, I have Fios here, uh... And it's on there, and I've I've never seen it in, in its entirety. Yeah, there's a guy that's just made some wonderful movies. He's done a lot of things for the check, which he'd probably admit. But um, but you never fun. you never feel fun. it with his performances, you know. He never no, has ones that yeah. It's what's so great about a movie like Time After Time. It's silly, and it's it's you know it's a it's a it's 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 popcorn movie. But he's so so committed. Do you know the story of um? 
there's that part where he swings open the door and H.G. Wells is there and he says, um, you're literally the last person on earth I expected to see. Do you remember that line? Yeah, Do you know I this? love the line. Is there a story behind it? Yeah, the story of who's behind the door when they, uh, in the, in the um, raw take of it is um, when they were filming that Star Trek, the motion picture was filming in like the next studio over. So they had Kirk and Spock stand behind that door. So when he opens the door and he's surprised at what he sees behind it, it's Kirk and Spock off screen. Oh, that's hmm. amazing. Isn't that funny? Yeah. That's a, that's a wonderful little movie, though. That one, um, it's light, but it's serious about itself. You know, it, 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 never, um, it never feels like it has to, like, excuse itself or anything. Well, it's another film that manages, like I said, it's a popcorn movie, but it also manages, to, like a lot of films of the 70s, it manages to make a point. And, and one of the points it makes is about violence. And being yeah. desensitized the, 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 the to it, you know, there's that scene where David Warner is is changing the channels in his hotel room, and he says, "I was, I was, uh, I was a freak in my era." And and he's he's going, and there's there's explosions, and there's murders, and the local news, and uh, on the television, he turns to HG and he says, "I'm home." Yeah. Even in, in even in this kind of silly escapist movie that Nicholas Meyer has 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 finds the room to to say something. I spoke to, I mean, part of that was just Nicholas Meyer is so good, but I spoke to the guy who was the um, production designer on Alien and the, the set dresser on Star Wars, and he, I was asking him about this year, and he was saying that there was this moment in like the late 70s, early 80s, where they really felt like science fiction, it, it, you could do anything with it, and you didn't have to, um, you didn't have to dress it down, you didn't have to make it stupid, and you, you, you could use it to talk to people and, and to talk about things in a way that I think once the eighties got rolling, they immediately gave up on that. And I feel like we've never entirely gotten it back. That, uh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting theory. Yeah. That sense of science fiction is something almost revolutionary. Mm. Well, of course the black hole also came out that year. Oh yeah. <laughs> we're going on a down note. <laughs> yeah. Not, not a, not an A-lister. But Alien, I mean, Alien, I, I think, has as compelling a case as any to be, like, the most beautiful and perfectly structured movie, maybe, maybe of any. And it's so quietly revolutionary in so many little ways, you know. Um, I mean, even from the, the female lead and the killing off of the um, star, like, a third of the mm -hmm. way in, to mm -hmm. even, like, there are these shots where Ridley Scott will be shooting these aliens, but he'll be shooting them like they're, like, religious relics, I remember the shots when the facehugger is on Kane's face in the um, in the medical bay, and there's these like one point perspective shots of the the arms around his face, and it looks like like the buttresses of a cathedral. And there's just such a like a weight to those shots and to the to the alien that you you almost are left with no choice but to take it seriously. You know, it's funny. I was 18 years old when 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 I'm I'm, I'm sure I'm considerably older than you guys, but when when Alien. There are certain movie experiences in your life where you maybe it's not even the movie itself, but there's something, some period you're in in your life, or something that happened that week or that day where it colors the experience of seeing that movie. Yeah, I mean, I feel that way about Pennies from Heaven. Speaking of Steve Martin, because I remember the the circumstances, uh, the perfect circumstances when I when I saw it. But Alien and all that jazz, two movies from 1979. I, I, I can remember the experience of walking out of the theater so vividly. You know, they both, in different ways, obviously very different yeah. movies, that made such strong impressions on me. Did Alien scare you? Yeah, but I, I remember even being a teenager, I remember thinking, wow, that was artistic. 
You know, it wasn't like, you know, like the same kind of feeling you have when you see Jaws for the first time. Yeah. It's it's a thriller, but you, you uh, and, at, and at 18, what the hell do I know about film or, you know, or directors or any of that stuff. But I, I just remember feeling like I was in very good hands, like I'd seen something special. Yeah. He, Aside um, from the thrills and the and and you know how it worked as a as a as an adventure or as a as a as a horror movie, it was just so artfully made. Yeah, yeah. and that opening shot just gets you right into it. Absolutely, that pan. Even the title. I mean, when you yeah. really look at it, like that's the perfect title for oh, a yeah. movie. It's, it's one of those so... titles where it's like, how is that not used? Yeah. And the the script they labored over it for so long. You know, Dan O'Bannon was uh, he was living on. Um, David Geiler's house when he on his couch when he was writing it, and they had like Walter Hill come in and fix it up, and they oh yeah, they spent, right, Walter Hill. Yeah, but it, it it was it's one of those scripts like um, City Lights where I feel like they spent more time paring it down to its essentials than building anything on it. You know, if you go back and you look at some of the early drafts, you know, all they're doing is just ripping things out as it goes and finding out what the structural supports are. Mm. But I wonder I, sometimes if these things are just, in, in many, many cases, they're the results of happy accidents. I think it really was in that case, because a lot of it was the fallout from um, Dune not being made. So all uh-huh. of a sudden you had all these great um, concept artists who had started some work in some science fiction stuff that they didn't know where to attach it to. And um, the smartest move I think Ridley Scott ever made, maybe in his entire career, was hiring a different guy to design the Nostromo the space suits and the alien so that all three of those elements feel like they came out of a completely different mind. And it has this weird effect where like, you know, nothing feels too, um, too artificially implanted there. You know, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Didn't HR Giger just pass away? I think he did. Yeah. 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 That was a shame. Not long ago. He, uh, he, he knew when he was doing alien, he was doing something special. He, he made a whole documentary on his own about the making of it actually, which is worth digging up. It's when you when you just look at the diversity of the films of that year. I'm looking here, you know, Star Trek the Motion Picture, Manhattan. Yeah. The Warriors, Mad Max. Yeah. Um See uh, the Escape Warriors The Warriors and Mad Max to me feel like that's when like the eighties are coming. Yeah. Yeah, it's like right around the corner. Yeah. You can like see you, it. <laughs> it's, it there, but there's such clear bridges because there's some thought behind it, yet you have these like like just the style. Yeah, the hair. I don't well, know. The, what it the is. Warriors is an '80s movie with '70s film techniques. Exactly. You know? Like you don't encounter that a lot, where you have that high concept, high gloss, you know, like fun gang thing. But it's also shot guerrilla on the streets in like genuine bad neighborhoods in the city with minimal lighting. Right. It really, it's a cool combination. And Mad Max, you have this like you know this post-apocalyptic world. That, you know, like look at the the most recent Mad Max movie, and yet the first one has like the half of that movie is just like guys like mulling around in silence. And then in between it's like bookended with like car chases and like uh, violence, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, it's like the eighties are coming. I saw Mad Max um, for the first time in a few years when the, when the fourth one came out, I did a run of them all. And I always, I always never liked the first one that much compared to the others. I mean, I was, I was road warrior and then the first one was kind of the last one, but watching it again, it is really, really, really good. It's very deliberate. It's very like you feel something on the horizon. You know, they're very right. good at giving you this this sense that all these things are about to collide, which is um, which is very seventies of it. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's 
it's funny because it's such a herald of the 80s, but it's so much of its time and it's what it's thinking about. I mean, it's about peak oil, which is just so 70s. In the mm-hmm. 80s, nobody gave a shit. <laughs> <laughs> Have any of you guys seen a little, a, a little film that was made in 1979 called Going in Style? No. no. I tried to track that one down. For some reason, it's like out of print on DVD. It's not streaming anywhere. I really, really, really wanted to check that one out because you made a great case for it on your show. It's another film, Martin Brest, who would go on to make, you know, Beverly Hills Cop and Midnight Run. And it's a small movie with three actors at the end of their lives. And uh, they're Lee Strasberg, Georgia Burns, and Art Carney, and, and they've never been better. I love and Art Carney. I can't find it. Uh, I'll, I'll, see, uh, I'll see if I can uh, dig it out. I may have it here somewhere. Uh, uh, just a, a sweet film that's, that's off a lot of people's radar, also from that year. A lesser-known 79 movie that I really like is Winter Kills. Have you seen that? Yeah, that's the one with the, with the, with the assassination. Uh, yeah, it's a JFK assassination. Jeff Bridges. Yeah, Jeff Bridges and William Richard is the director. Yeah, the guy that made, is, 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 am I right, the guy that made, William Richard, the guy that made uh, Buckaroo Banzai? That's the same guy? No, that's W.D. Richter. Different no, guy. He's, uh, he is the uh, homeless guy in um, my own private Idaho. Is what okay. Richard, uh, I think, is most well known for, perhaps. But he's done I've other never movies. Seen Winter Kills. It, it's a really uh, uh, interesting film. I mean, it's just, it's like JFK assassination. Uh, John Houston has a cameo in it. Um, it's a little. It's funny. It's a great satire. You know, it, it's basically. And and what's interesting too is that the story uh, behind making that movie is about as murky as a JFK assassination was too. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do some reading on it. Yeah, I would definitely. I, you know, it's lesser known, but but uh, Richard, he has a very particular style, and there's maybe some parts that are hit or miss. But I don't know. I I, I like that movie. It's a weird one, and Jeff Bridges is always amazing. So love Jeff Bridges in anything, pretty much. And then John Huston, you know, there's also Wise Blood came out that year. Which, oh yeah, that's a good film. So uh, very strange film. <laughs> I was talking to John about this just earlier about you know like I was trying to figure out if it was it the book that was weird or was yeah, it a John Huston failure because meticulously accurate to the book actually because <laughs> I feel like John Huston as a director he either makes amazing movies or like kind of bad movies like he's really hit or miss for me. That I would love to mention a movie that we talked about on our podcast, Gilbert and I, called um, Murder by Decree, which is, because we were talking about... Time right, yeah, time. the Sherlock Holmes that year. Yeah, this is another, it's a ripper, it's a Jack the Ripper Sherlock Holmes story that I think you guys will love. See, see if with, with Christopher Plummer, the only time he played Sherlock Holmes and James Mason playing Watson. Oh, uh, that's great casting. And, and it, of all people to have made it, uh, Bob Clark, who made the Porky's really? film. And uh, yeah. all those horror movies that I love. Yeah, the the one with Santa Claus with the axe. Yeah, yeah, and the one where the the zombies eat all the actors on that island. Yes, but 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 uh, um, and he came to a sad end too. But the uh, the film is is wonderful, and and again another one of those that maybe doesn't jump out at people from that year. He's an underrated director. He. Um... He's a guy who always hits really good, you know, triples every time out. And, um, well, he made a Christmas story. Yeah. But outside yeah. of that one, you know, he, he's, I mean, he basically invented the slasher movies, which isn't the greatest <laughs> genre to have invented, but his was really good. What and is he, the name of that? Uh, and, uh, Black Christmas, I think. Black Unless Christmas, that was the other one, because I know there's another Christmas one right. that was a ripoff of his. But I think his was Black Christmas. And I want to correct myself from before, um, Jenna, a quadrophenia was not directed by Ken Russell. My yeah, mistake, he did Tommy. Frank Rodham, who made, uh, I believe, The Bride with uh, Sting. Oh, yeah, Sting's in quadrophenia. 
Quadrophenia is one of those movies. You know, I, I think that a lot of uh, Who fans seem to like Quadrophenia more than than Tommy, but I like Tommy more than Quadrophenia. It's also a better album, Tommy. Tommy's a better <laughs> album, but I, I just, it's such a, that, that movie, I mean, not 79, but I, I love that movie. I feel like it's really like railroaded because it's, it's makes sense. That's the problem. People watch yeah. it once and they think this is nonsense. <laughs> no, it makes sense. You got to watch it again. But uh, Quadrophenia, I think, is more like about style. That's one of those movies that if you saw as a teenager or at any age, you know, like uh, any year rather as a teenager, it influences you because you, you know, you get these little, uh, you know, slice of life kind of thing where mm -hmm. if you like that music and then you like those styles, you know, it tells you how to get your jeans real tight if you wear them <laughs> wet, you know, stuff like that. And I feel like that's, there is an appeal to it. It, you know, this sort of... Um, depressed teenager kind of movie but good music i like that movie not bad if we can go back to holmes for a second have any of you seen the soviet sherlock holmes from 1979 I sherlock have. holmes and dr watson that's a good one it's Which so one? good it's it's just called sherlock holmes and dr watson it was the beginning of this series of um soviet sherlock holmes movies from like the late 70s into the 80s i and think you got me stumped there the th the thing about the soviets is when they were doing american or english stuff they really felt like their reputation was on the line. So like they would try to outdo everybody. So they have some Shakespearean adaptations from like the sixties that are like, it's easily like the best versions of those Shakespeare stories you're going to find. And Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson has that same sort of vibe where like, you know, they feel like they have to do the best version of it. So they just do. And it's, uh, it's, it's so fun. The, the music is so good. It has this great theme song it's, it was, it was, I think made for TV. It's like yeah. a two parter, very fast, very smart, very funny. The, the actors are just wonderful. It's one of the only times where I really like the guy who's playing Holmes. Cause I always go for Watson more. Yeah. It's, well, a, it's Vasily Levinov, which yeah. is, he's often regarded as the best, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. This was in the middle of the cold war, the British government and their Sherlock Holmes society just flat out said he was the best one. It's like, how good <laughs> wow. do you have to be to, to get that? But yeah, that that one. Um, if you can dig it up, it's it goes in and out of print. But um, and it's just called Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Yeah. Okay. Very very good movie. Really. Um, I'll look for it. It's it's a two parter because it was for TV. So you know you get like an hour and a half, and then go get yourself a lunch and come back and finish it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, another made for TV movie was the Elvis John Carpenter movie. Oh was yeah. That here? Yeah. Wow. And I watched it recently. I got to say, I watched the three-hour version the other night. Not great. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kurt's great. You know, he is great. So here's the thing, though, is like I, I, maybe now I'm... Uh, so recently, for, for more little background information about me, is that I just watched every Elvis movie ever made. Oh, good for you. <laughs> yeah, there's a series <laughs> yeah. called Jenna Does Elvis on I the Smart Film site. brave soul. <laughs> that, exactly, it was brave. But, you know... She's so, wearing an Elvis shirt right now. Oh, yeah, don't tell everyone. But... <laughs> Um, I've now starting now I'm reading biographies about Elvis. I'm getting into it. And so watching that movie, I was like, I started to get annoyed about all the inaccuracies. <laughs> so yeah. I started to kind of color it, but I have to say Kurt Russell, who looks absolutely nothing like Elvis, he got the moves down, you know, he, in yeah. the way that he just like, uh, even like the, the ticks, you know, how he sort of moves his head and like shakes his shoulders a little bit. He does. He really tried very hard and it's obvious and it's very, and he is good. But uh, I don't know. There's a lot of weirdness with that movie. You I said mean, there were some inaccuracies in it too. Well, yeah, there's right? like stuff he's like they show him at like you know auditioning for like the Grand Old Opry and like uh, he the guy tells him like no and then Elvis storms off stage and like 
breaks his guitar. Like that never happened. (laughs) (laughs) And like, I can't imagine that it would have happened with Elvis. And then stuff like Priscilla seems to be like the, the mature voice of reason in that movie, which doesn't, it seems inaccurate to me as well. But you know, I don't know. I guess it's like a kind of good introduction. It's interesting because people seem to really like it. And I don't know if I, you know, I, like being too like a nerdy factual about it. I'm like, I mean, ah, like the Elvis more was you, never there on that year. You know, The more you know about a subject, the more any movie about it is going to annoy you. Well, yeah, I just hate those, you know, like the biopic. Well, that's like all that jazz actually is, is such a great movie because it, it captures a real spirit of somebody. Yeah. Granted, he made a movie about himself, old Bob Fosse. So it's pretty easy for him to understand himself, I'd hope. But um, you know, like, it, well, it's funny because that's like what the whole movie is about him trying to understand himself. Right. Which is what makes it so fantastic. You know, like, whereas, you know, you get a movie like this, this Elvis movie, I thought like they didn't try, they didn't dig too hard. You know, it's like they have some scenes of him talking to his shadow as if he's talking to his dead brother that, you know, that's yeah. about it. They, you don't really get any real insight into Elvis. Mm. Yeah. All, all that jazz has that really um, underrated visual storytelling, I think. Not even like cinematography, but just like the way, like there's that one shot near the beginning when he's rehearsing all those people and he's pulling mm-hmm. the ones out and um, it starts really close on him and it just keeps pulling out and it feels like the zoom out just takes forever because there's so many people. Yeah. And it's just, there's a lot of, um, Fosse was a better compositional director than I think he gets credit for because that, that movie really was... Um, just it's one of those movies staged. where the more you watch it, 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 each time you see something new to like. Yeah, because it's Definitely. so dense. It's like modernism or something. It, it it feels like like a like a Joyce book or something where some of those things will happen. And you'll be like, wait, what? And then you know, like it, it's so personal and interior and dense and depressing. And, yes, and depressing, which <laughs> is what depressing. I love about it. Exactly. My wife, my wife says you only show me depressing movies. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you show me something uplifting? I mean, I made her watch the conversation and then all that jazz. And, uh, oh, jeez, yeah. <laughs> the, ver- the verdicts. I mean, it's just like that's that's my speed. It's just you know one depressing movie after another. But we watched it, and recently, because uh, I was talking about it on another podcast um, called uh, See Here, and uh, it's surprisingly not as depressing as you think it is. It's you know it's a it's a great funny it's very funny it's very it's a great send-up of show business oh definitely and, and, and his own addiction to it his own inability to 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 uh, to escape that life and it's a great it's a great biopic in that way too because it has an extra uh, note to it you know like instead of being about and, and you know granted he changed the name and there's you know it's not like yeah. it's meant to be completely about his life but it, it is and you know, the fact that there's more to it that I have, like, I would love to see more biopics like that, you know, that isn't about like he was born then and he died then. And here's yeah. the stuff in between. Like that stuff gets so boring and formulaic. Whereas here is this perfect picture of Bob Fosse, who then later died of a heart attack, you know, yeah. a movie about him dying of heart attack and, and everything he thinks and feels about it. And, you know, great send up of, of show business. And, and, you know, that's it, such a, it's such a brilliant oh. film. It is. It is. It's a. It's a brilliant film. I've talked about it on not only that podcast but my own, and it's. It's. It's got to be the least flattering self-portrait ever mm. put on film. Mm. It feels like an apology. Yes, it is in many ways. Yeah. There's, 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 there's a book. There's this terrific book on Fosse. The author's name is escaping me, and I'm sorry. That came out maybe in the last two years. And uh, there's a moment, you know, the end of the film where it's Bye Bye Life and he's running up into the audience apologizing to people. Yeah. And Scheider, it's like they were, they were shooting it all day. And then uh, the story in the book goes 
that he said, what does that feel like? You know, you're, you're running up into the audience and being, you know, what are, what are you feeling? You're, you're thinking about your own life. And Chider said, why don't you do it? Why don't you try it? And I hope this is true. I hope this actually happened and wasn't apocryphal, but supposedly Fosse, and these were only actors, right? Aside from Ed Reinking, who we actually had a relationship with, that he went up, you know, they, they stopped shooting for a while, and then he ran up into the audience and he, and he, and he, he did the dialogue. Wow. You know? That he that he 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 issued these these mea copas and it was cathartic for him. That's amazing. That's because great. He's pre- yeah, he's predicting his own death on 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 on, cinem- on celluloid, which is also one of the things that makes the yeah because he makes Star eighty a couple of years later and he's dead. What he's dead within I think five years. Right. Six or maybe six or seven at most, and it's it's uh it's it's eerie and touching at the same time. What happened to Shider? Now I'm thinking about it. Where? How he made the last embrace that year, seventy nine. You guys see uh, that? Oh yeah, the last of Sheila. Wasn't wasn't that? No, not the last of Sheila. The last embrace was. I uh, had a different title. Did it? I remember. Yeah, it was. It was the one with. Is it Jonathan Demi movie? Yeah, Demi. Yeah, I'm trying to think. It was. Uh, what? What? Why he passed away finally? Didn't he? Right yeah, but I think like in the nineties. I mean, he's one of those ones that once the eighties hit, he was just gone. And he's not like I don't think like Elliot Gould, where you can see the movies get crappier until nobody would take him anymore. <laughs> I Just think what, there were bad happened? movies like Blue Thunder and um, one called The Men's The Men's Club. I've never but even heard of that. He in a Frankenheimer movie called Fifty Two Pickup with Anne Margaret. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Maybe one. You can find that one. But uh, yeah, again, another actor whose heyday was in the seventies, right? The Seven Ups and yeah, and the Mar- Marathon Man and and Jaws, and, and the whole thing. Yeah, and the, the interesting story about uh, all that jazz, which we've told on the show, was that they start was they started with Richard Dreyfuss. Really. Oh yeah, he was cast as Joe Gideon, coming off an Oscar for the Goodbye Girl and hot, and and super hot. I'm picturing and, him and, basically as Duddy Kravitz. Right. Well, he and Fosse did not only did not click, but according to the things I've read in this Fosse book, again, which is a terrific book, I think just called Fosse, and I can't think of the title, but you'll see it if you go on Amazon. Uh, that that Dreyfus himself suddenly realized, or the people close to him said, I don't think you can pull off a musical. Hmm. And he was, what makes the story funny is he was confiding in Scheider, his old friend, at dinner, at a series of dinners, saying, I don't think I can pull this off, and Fosse hates me. And Scheider goes and winds up playing the part. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's lucky Robert Shaw didn't steal it from him. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but Scheider's great, despite having no history anywhere as a song and dance man. Yeah. Well, that's kind of like uh, Apocalypse Now, Keitel getting hired, and then they just couldn't take him seriously as not immediately killing Kurtz. So they had to lose him for Martin Sheen. Right, and then Sheen has the heart attack. and you know, Yeah, and they had to bring his brother in. Yeah, Right. That one, um, I, I, I've always wondered if part of the reason, I mean, one from the heart is part of it too, but part of the reason Copeland never made a movie like that again was, I wonder if he was just spent after Apocalypse Now. When you really look at that production, I mean, that's, you know, it's like actually going to war. Oh, yeah. Well, Hearts of Darkness is a great doc. Yeah. yeah about that and there's a great book about it too that i think is just called the apocalypse now book but yeah it, it's it's amazing the um just complete breakdown of his career that i think went immediately afterwards well he started making smaller films like the like those se hinton movies the outsiders and rumblefish yeah rumblefish i thought was pretty good actually yeah, yeah i like it i like tucker uh speaking of jeff bridges yeah that was a, a good man one. in his dream yeah but he, uh, he, I feel like Apocalypse Now, he just, he looked at it, he looked at what he did, and he said, never again, which is very opposite well, I mean, from yeah. Herzog. 
Yeah. <laughs> again, there's a guy with a couple for all intents and purposes is kind of done by the end of the seventies. Yeah. Well, Herzog you know? that year too. Um, he did a uh, Nosferatu and oh, Wojciech. Right. Yeah. Wojciech, which is probably his darkest movie. And 80 minutes. Too. Yeah. It, it fits a lot of darkness in 80 minutes. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and, and Nosferatu is, I mean, probably his most beautiful. Yeah. Nosferatu, I think is so eerie because it just refuses to ever be scary. You know, mm-hmm. like in this weird way, it's it's just this. Yeah, that's a very good observation. It feels like a very um, true, like Victorian, um, almost like pastoral tale that just gets invaded by a vampire, as opposed Boy, to something. I really that's, want to go back and see all these now. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen it you in guys years. Are making me want to hit Netflix and uh, <laughs> dial, dial up nineteen seventy nine and just binge. I tried to uh, watch Nosferatu and Wojciech last night because I wanted to do it in anticipation of this because I hadn't seen those in many many years and I could not stay awake for them. There's something <laughs> that's so dreamlike about them, yeah. and I was enjoying myself too. And I was enjoying myself so well that I was drifting off into into sleep. Basically, <laughs> they're yeah. just so you know. The, it just hypnotizes you. It really does. It's like a heart of glass where yeah. <laughs> you feel like one of the characters in that as you're watching those movies. Well, Nosferatu, I think, is probably the closest looking to like a romantic painting or like a Hudson River School painting. I mean, it really has that just sort of overwhelming, like wandering through the mist quality, which is yeah. so it's such a sedative almost. And then Nosferatu just sort of creeps up on you through the course of the movie, you know? Because it's such a beautiful space that you're in, and just like little by little, it gets corrupted by by this very creepy dude. Yeah, like a stalker, which also came out in yeah, yeah. Good call, Tarkovsky. I love that movie. That's a, another one where you also have to be like you have to watch it in the morning or in a theater. You know? <laughs> also, like the most inexplicable movie to video game transition is Stalker. What? Yeah, there's, there's a, a video game. There's a stalker video <laughs> really? game. Yeah. When did that come out? Yeah, I I can't remember exactly. I, I, I somebody was telling me about. I think it was like uh, I think it was not that long ago. Do you die after ten years? After I, I never played it, but because <laughs> that was a, I mean that's another movie where like you know just because they sh- they shot it all in like um, areas of of Russia that were like you know sectioned off because of radiation, and then yeah. everyone in that movie died ten years later. Yeah, like the the Conqueror with uh, John Wayne or something. I'm looking oh, yeah. at it now. 2007, there was a video game called right? Stalker. That's, That's so crazy. weird. <laughs> yeah, I never played it, but like I remember seeing that and being like, "That can't be right." <laughs> but when you think about it, the premise of Stalker really is very like video gamey. You know, there's like this contaminated sector and these guys on a mission, and it's just like so aggressively not being that kind of movie. Yeah, right now, if it were made, it would be like a Paul W.S. Anderson movie or something. Yeah, <laughs> Sam Worthington would be in it. Yeah. <laughs> now, as long as we're talking about the great films of 1979, I know you guys uh, don't want to fail to mention the Concord Airport 79. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and of course, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. Oh, yeah. I watched that probably four times when I was a kid. Because <laughs> it <laughs> used to be... There, there were some clunkers in 79 yeah. as well. That used to be Beyond the Poseidon Adventure used to be on AMC back when they called themselves American movie classics, like every day at like 11 a.m. And whenever I was cutting school, it was like Poseid- Beyond the Poseidon Adventure and then like Blade on HBO. <laughs> wow. Terrifying. Yeah. It's a hell of a two pack. And then actually you had a lot of those sort of junk movies that year. That was also um, Chomps. <laughs> Chomps. Oh, my gosh. But you had the you had the big two pack of um, 
Star Wars ripoffs, The Humanoid and Star Crash. Which oh, are, God. Yeah. <laughs> That's a double feature there. <laughs> the, th- the thing about them, though, is um, The Humanoid's interesting because the soundtrack is by Morricone, and he's trying to do Brian Eno, and it's it it doesn't quite work, but like you'll hear these things and you'll be like, that's not right. <laughs> like you'll hear these like moments where it sounds like a spaghetti western score, like in the style of a Brian Eno album. <laughs> and it's just the strangest, strangest thing. But Star Crash is interesting because it has these like things in it that the um Star Wars sequels kind of started to take. Interesting. The, it was that one in that um Japanese movie the year before by the director of um the Yakuza papers, those two, they they have these like little visual elements. Like the windows will look like the windows in the, in the, uh, at the end of the third star Wars that he's zapping him in front of. And like, there's these little, like the holograms will, they'll be like the giant holograms that'll look like an empire strikes back. Right. And there's these small little beats sprinkled through them that you kind of look at them. And they're like, you were watching this Lucas, weren't you? <laughs> you were keeping His tabs. curiosity. got the best of him. He had yeah. to, I have to give you guys credit. You run the gamut here from Kramer versus Kramer to Chomps. <laughs> the Chomps, uh, the Chomps main theme is pretty amazing. Actually, <laughs> the, uh, the, the main title theme, it has this really addictive bit. I tried, you know, for a 1979 film, I got to try everything. So I of course tried Chomps and, uh, very interesting. It's a Hanna-Barbera live action mm-hmm. essentially. And there, but there's a main theme to it that is really addictive. It goes like, um, and it just loops like that over and over, but they actually don't use it enough. And I feel like it's catchy. I do want to keep, I I want you to keep doing that. You're turning (laughs) into Gilbert on me. (laughs) (laughs) If they had used that for the entire film and kept calling back to it, I would have watched the whole film easily (laughs) because it just gets in your head and you're like, I'm going to follow this to the end, but they do it like once or twice. And it's like, no, you didn't realize what you had. That could have been something. It, It has this quality where it's like, like that's way more catchier than the gremlin song even. It's just it has this thing where it just gets into you and it they just didn't use it well enough. Somebody's got to pull a Tarantino and put it in another movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> you got to remake Hanna Barbera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would love to remake Chomps. If anybody's out there with uh looking for somebody to remake Chomps, I will play the hell out of that one little melody throughout the entire <laughs> thing. I'll do it justice. That'll be our uh, our eclipse box set. It'll be the the live action films of Hanna Barbera. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> Rocky too. We should uh, talk about. I read this uh, great collection of Ebert pieces. It's a book he did. I think in like the eighties or late seventies, or I, I guess it would be late eighties actually. Um, called "The Kiss Is Still a Kiss," and um, in it, there's this great piece where he he saw Rocky two with Muhammad Ali. Really? Sitting right next to him. And the whole piece is basically just Muhammad Ali saying things to Ebert while he's watching Rocky II. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's actually, wow. it's on the Roger Ebert website. You can find it on there, which is great. And uh, it, it, it's something you just have to read because you, you get his perspective and he calls it out on like the stuff it doesn't get right. And it calls it out on the stuff it does get right. Like he talks about how, you know, Rocky... Clearly, he's not he's not fighting like a fighter. And in the scene where everybody's training, you can see the extras who are fighters and you can see the ones that aren't. It's just like very apparent to him. But the thing that he says, it got absolutely right, which a lot of people watching the movie would assume it got wrong and was cheesy, was that 
that training scene where he's he's running and all the kids are following him. Muhammad Ali was like, yeah, that's exactly accurate. That's <laughs> it, that, that's the most accurate thing. But people are going to see that and think it was just overblown. Well, you he was can like, see that in When We Were Kings. Yeah, I mean, and you he was see like, that actually happen. Exactly. He was like, that happens all the time. <laughs> By the way, I have this is only semi-related, but I feel like I need to throw this in one episode and it's never come up. There's a 30 for 30 I keep mentioning called Muhammad and Larry. And one of the reasons to watch it is because you can hear Muhammad Ali summarize Star Wars. And it's like the funniest <laughs> really? thing. Yeah, he says it's um, something like spaceships and Dracula fighting on Horror Mountain. <laughs> and it, he has like three lines. It, it's in the middle. He's like trash talking. Um, he's trash talking Larry Holmes with this. And I forget what it is, but he, he gives these like three lines describing Star Wars. <laughs> As this like mad monster bash in space. <laughs> and it's like How my bizarre. favorite thing in anything. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break right now. And then we'll be back with uh, more 79 discussion. Hello, Smug Film fans. Did you know that Smug Film now has a voicemail box? Just call the following phone number. 718395979. Nine seven one one, and leave a question or a comment about the show along with your name, and we may play it on a future episode. Thank you for listening, and now, back to the show. And now, Chloe Peltier, reviewing a movie she's seen parts of while working at the theater. So, I really want to see The Visit, and I'm probably going to have to work it opening night. So there's no way for me to see it before I have to work it, which is really, really frustrating because I don't want it spoiled for me. And the trailer for this one looks so good. It looks so up my alley. You know, Cody went to an advanced screening of it. He said I would love it. And he's not often wrong when he says that. And I don't know, I'm just excited and I don't want anything ruined. And it's just kind of depressing. It's depressing that... Nobody expects it to be good, and it's depressing that as one of the only people who expects it to be good, I'm going to not get to have an organic experience with it. I'm just kind of, I don't know, I feel kind of shitty. Thanks, Chloe. And now, back to the show. Nobody's going to throw a moonraker out there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was the highest grossing uh, worldwide, apparently. I, yeah. I read this book. Sometimes I'll just go buy old paperbacks just to see what I can find. And I, I picked up this um, old, like, 150-page sci-fi book from the 70s because I thought it looked cool and it had this spaceship on the cover. And it was, like, really good. It was about this spaceship that explodes and everybody's in these different capsules and they're trying to get away. But then I was reading about it. And apparently, Moonraker, they bought the rights to this book so that they could do the zero-gravity sex scene. They took wow. nothing else from the book, but wow. they bought it to do the zero gravity sex scene. Mm. You guys are a warehouse of some very, very bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think, so I think that's John in general. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we are back, and uh, we're going to speed things up here. Do kind of a lightning round, kind of uh, us mentioning things that uh, you know we've seen that we know none of us, none of the other people have seen. Um, I'll start it off real quick with. Uh, a TV movie with uh, James Woods and Sally Struthers called And Your Name is Jonah, which... Oh, I've heard, yes, I know this film. It's actually, like, really good. I, I watched it because I'll watch any, like, disability movie just because I'm, I'm fascinated when it doesn't work. 
you know, like I love, I love those ones that are just, they're too cheesy or they get stuff wrong or whatever. But this one, it's, it's a really solid movie and it's on Netflix and it's in HD, surprisingly. Like it's not, you know, one of those like standard definition ones where you got to like squint almost because it's like an old TV thing. You know, it's, it's, it's well shot. It's very well acted. James Woods is, is incredible. And it's, it's very much just like a family drama with like a focus on the kids too. It's almost like an Ozu in that way. And uh, I really, really dug it. I was, I was moved to tears by the end of it. <laughs> and uh, I think it's definitely worth checking out. Sally Struthers is very good in it and she's, she's beautiful in it too. And I, I really, really dig that film. I, w- I was glad I checked it out because I was, I was basically searching for anything I could possibly find on, on Netflix that was 1979, just trying to find, seeing if there was like a gem there. And, and that, that is an absolute gem. So if you have Netflix Instant at home, definitely check that one out. Okay. And my name is Jonah. Yeah. And your yeah, name I is Jonah. I've never seen it. Yeah, really, really works. There's this, uh, this great, like, I guess, a, an arc where uh, he, he's reading a, uh, uh, a comic book. It's about a, a deaf kid who uh, doesn't really know how to speak. He's, he's misdiagnosed as uh, retarded. And he's at like a facility for that for like three years. And then the film starts off where like the parents take him home because the doctors realize their mistake. And um, because he he doesn't have any like reference for anything, he's like he's watching his brother reading like a Spider-Man comic and he's like looking at the Spider-Man comic and his brother's trying to show him it. And he's he's very scared of Spider-Man because he doesn't realize that Spider-Man is a hero. So throughout the film, he's like haunted by Spider-Man. Wow. Which I thought was such a great like childhood thing because I, I even have memories of that where like, you know, something isn't supposed to be scary or you have no idea what it's supposed to be. And it's just, it's an imagery yeah. that sticks in your head. And if you think of like the Spider-Man mask, it could very easily have been like a horror mask or something. If you didn't know that the, yeah. the, the character was benevolent. And I, I, I really dug that aspect. Even like, like I remember like being scared of Alf when I was a kid, <laughs> like I would, and, I, and I'm still scared so. of him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I wrote a sitcom that was uh, you'll never find on the internet called Lost on Earth, and it was basically created by uh, the gentleman Paul Fusco, who created Alf. Oh wow! Really? And I was really scared, uh, <laughs> and, and it was my job. <laughs> Are the stories of that set as uh, as crazy as they uh, as I've heard? Where it was like trapdoors everywhere in the set to let Alf uh, in and out. Alf, you mean? Yeah. I don't know nothing about Alf. I knew Paul, but because he created this show, and I was just trying to get—I was trying to get my Writers Guild card, <laughs> and I went to work on this. Well, it was basically the network went to him, and they said, well, "Look, Alf was successful," and he said, "All right, well, I give you a show with six Alfs." And it was, <laughs> it was a sitcom with six alien puppets, and it was my first foray into uh, prime time. Oh and, man! Uh, uh, you file it under "Be careful what you wish for." I'm going to do my damnedest to dig this up. If you find that, you're a genius. You're, you're an internet uh, <laughs> I remember looking at your IMDb frame. The, the actor who played in uh, in the trading play, trade beaks in trading places. Oh, yeah. The bad, the bad guy, Paul Gleason, or from Die Hard. Yeah. Mm. What? Or it's a principal in Breakfast Club. That's what most people know him from. Right, right, I'm right. Gonna, I'm going to try to find this thing. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to work on this one. Yeah. <laughs> Frank, I was looking at your IMDb, by the way. You, you wrote an episode of Eek the Cat? I did. I love that show. That was a great I show. I just <laughs> talked about it with Adam Goldberg on the show. Oh, it was so a, good. He did a voice. Yeah, it was a parody of Die Hard called Try Hard. 
<laughs> and uh, the most interesting thing about Eek the Cat, and I only did one episode, was working with Savage Steve Holland, who's a legend in in in, in, in and of itself, of him of his own. <laughs> what am I trying to say about Steve? He's a legend. Period. <laughs> He made Better Off Dead and um, One Crazy Summer. Yeah. You know these movies? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, see both of those movies, and, and uh, he's, a, uh, he's a fascinating guy. Uh, it, was a, it was a treat to know him. Nice. And I enjoyed the experience of, of knowing him um, even more than I, I did the... Uh, I wrote some cartoons when I was out there to pay the bills. Yeah, Eek the Cat. That, that's one of those ones that really just sticks out in my memory as a kid. It's like I, for the life of me, I couldn't remember a single episode, but just the the <laughs> imagery of the show. Well, there you go. It really, it really <laughs> that, that's for you, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks really, for remembering mine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just so it it sticks in my head, especially the intro to it. You know, it just. I wrote some. Uh, I wrote some funny things. You know, it was. It, it, the life of a writer in L.A. looking for work, you know, you have this grand design about these things you're going to do and then the things that you do for, for money. Sure. And, and I fell into writing uh, Saturday morning shows, and for a while it was fun because I would go to the recording sessions and meet actors. Mel Brooks did a voice for a... Um, I did a cartoon for a Spielberg called Toonsylvania, which was a, uh, a monster. I think I remember that, yeah. It was a monster, Frankenstein monster and Igor thing. I think Brad Garrett was the voice of the... Uh, of the monster and Wayne Knight from from Seinfeld. So I'd go and meet these people, and I'd go and or I'd go and I'd sit in on the. Um, uh, I wrote Sylvester and Tweety cartoons for Warner Brothers for a while, and they would they would still use an orchestra mm, to, wow. to record. And you'd go there and you'd sit there, and and all the musicians would have your silly little uh, uh, pages from this script that you wrote, and I'd and be like a twenty eight piece orchestra there, and that was fun. Yeah, that's that's. Oh my god, I remember Toonsylvania. I just googled it. I just saw the picture. Yeah, I remember the show. Right? Yeah. Anything? You remember with, what? I remember this show. I googled it. You Any, remember Lost on Earth? No, no, no. Toonsylvania. <laughs> anything oh, with um, right. anything with like cartoon Frankenstein or Dracula was yeah, absolutely my jam when I was a kid. Stuff is what it comes down to, Cody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Um, but, uh, let, let's hear a uh, a lesser seen seventy nine one for you. You said you had a. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, being a comedy writer, I would throw three comedies out there, and uh, two of them not entirely successful. One is Injustice for All mm -hmm. with Pacino. Yeah, and by, um, Jeffrey Tambor. Correct. Yeah. Written, written, by, written by Barry Levinson, and I believe his wife at the time, Valerie Curtin. And uh, a, a smart little black comedy, not, not entirely successful, as I say. Uh, less entirely successful would be one I talked about on, the pot, on my show, which is... Um, 1941. Oh, I forgot that was 79. Yeah. Yeah, to take us back to movies like Ishtar and, yeah. uh, and Heaven's Gate that were maligned. And again, it's hard. It's, it's, it's bloated. It's got a lot of problems. It's, you know, the tone is all wrong. But any movie that has Christopher Lee and Tashira Mufuni yeah. and Slim <laughs> Pickens and Ned Beatty and Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi and Robert Stack and and I mean, Sam Fuller turns up in a cameo, and I mean, it's 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 hard to hate it. It's got so many fun things in it. And lastly, I would say the the most successful comedy, an entirely successful comedy, I think, which I mentioned on the break to Jenna, uh, is um, is the In Laws. Mm. It's the original In Laws, badly remade by Michael Douglas and Albert Brooks. Oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> but the original, written uh, by a guy named Andrew Bergman, um, who wrote with uh, Mel Brooks, was one of the writers on Blazing Saddles. Yeah, that and sounds great. 
Made a pretty, he made a couple of pretty good comedies himself. One called The Freshman with Martin, Marlon Brando. Right. Oh yeah, I love Broderick. that movie. That's yeah, a great yeah, one. Where, yeah. they go to, where he goes to NYU. Yeah. Yeah, and he made one called Honeymoon in Vegas, which is also a lot of fun. That's a cute Nicholas movie. Cage, yeah. Yeah. James Con. Both and, and, Freshman and, and Honeymoon in Vegas. Those are the ones I've seen. You know, just growing up so many times. Yeah, they're it was both all, fun. They're always both on TV. By, yeah, Freshman yeah, was a TV both. staple. Both made by Andrew Bergman, who's still around, and uh, and the in-laws he wrote, and it was directed by Arthur Hiller, and um, it holds up very, very well. Uh, Peter Falk and Alan Arkin, one of the early buddy movies. That's a dream team, the two of them. Yeah. Yeah, see that one, and and uh, and uh, you won't be disappointed. And uh, get back to me on it. That's one of those ones I've 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 heard of so many times, and it's like I'm kicking myself that I've never sat down and just watched it because it just that pairing is so good. It's so good. It's so good. And if you like comedy, dry and understated, I mean, there's plenty of slapstick in it, but there's just, it's a real thinking man's comedy. It won't insult your intelligence. Mm. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a spy spoof. It's a buddy movie, but it's, it's very, very well done. Nice. So John, Arkin, Arkin's a great comedian. It doesn't get enough credit. Yeah, oh, yeah he never did. Yeah. So John, you have, uh, one, you, uh, think we haven't seen yeah i got a i got a couple stumpers one actually um it sounds just like the james wood you were talking about um dummy which was another tv movie about a um deaf mute played by lavar burton very early right. in his career there was a warner archive that yes. came out a couple years yeah. back wow yeah. and he's uh he's accused of murder so it's about his trial and trying to prove him innocent and everything uh and it's frank perry who um he directed The Swimmer and Last Summer and uh, oh, Played sure. As It Lays. Yeah. One of mommy, the. And Mommy Dearest. Yeah. That was what stopped him cold. Yeah. <laughs> but one right, of the. Frank. One, one of the great underrated dramatists, I think, in, in American film, period. And he's starting to get a little more attention now. Um, you know, like The Swimmer has a release now. And Warner Archive wisely dug up this one, Dummy, and put it out. And it, it's a really wonderful movie. Burton's great in it. It's. Um, it has Frank Frank Perry's pretty piercing eye for just you know the way people interact with each other. There's no false friendship and there's no false um, animosity either. Mm. It has really sort of like a natural um, flow. And so two I'm years writing, after I'm Roots, this down. Right? I really want to see yeah. this now. Yeah, two years Is he after still Roots. With us, Frank Perry? Um, no, Frank Perry. I think died. Um, he must have passed. Yeah, a, a few years. I might be mixing him up with. Um, his death up with James Bridges because somehow I always get the two of their lives well, mixed Bridges, up. James Bridges died. Yeah, yeah it looks like yeah. uh, Frank Perry died in '95. Yeah, so. yeah, oh, yeah, wow, yeah, a while ago. Okay. Yeah, which is a shame because it does feel like he's starting to creep up and and becoming. I mean, I hear like I don't hear um, average film goers talking about him, but you know, like film people, I've been hearing him come up more and more in the past few years, which I think is really good. Well, the swimmer's great. Yeah, the swimmer's great, and David and Lisa is really great too. That one's yep. underrated. Yep. Last, Diary of a Mad Housewife. Yes. Oh, yep. yes, yes. That one's yep. great too. Last yep. summer, I think, is his masterpiece, and I've been waiting years for um, Warner Archive to release it, but I think there's some problem with the print they have or something. They keep pushing it off. But last summer, I actually just um, gave Jenna to watch as part of our recommend a movie for somebody roundtable. It's, uh, I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful movie. But Dummy is also a really wonderful movie. It's probably, I think, the last one he did before Mommy Dearest stopped his career okay. cold. I'm going to write that down. Yeah. And then um, another one that's really good, uh, I have less to say about, but it's very good, is there's this Israeli movie called um, The Wooden Gun, 
which is about Israel in 40, uh, I guess 48. It was right when it was, you know, just starting to be founded. And it's about a, uh, a little gang war between these two groups of kids. But the twist of it is um, their parents are all like war refugees. Hmm. So it's about these kids who are um, increasingly more violent and arbitrarily so with each other. And their parents are sitting there and like every night they listen to the radio and it's the um, remaining POW and casualty lists from the wars on the radio. And the parents are all really concerned that, you know, like something bad is going to happen because they're all remembering the build up to the war and watching their kids do it all over again. Really good movie. Quick, like, yeah, quick, like 90 minute drama. Really, um, it's a type of movie that you can tell could only be made from somebody who knew Israel very well. Hmm. Like, it gives you a side of it that doesn't feel facile. You know, you really feel you come out of it and you feel like you know a little more about the space there and the sort of temperament there. Um, a wooden gun. Yeah. So yeah, that's a really good that's one. That's really interesting. All right. And I'll throw one other out there just because, uh, I talk about this one a lot, but I can't stress enough that it's, incredible um 80 blocks from tiffany's this is one of my all-time favorite documentaries it's um the guys who shot the like man on the street stuff for snl in the early years they did a um like 60 minute 50 minute documentary about street gangs in the south bronx wow yeah and it's just stunning it's they follow um the savage nomads who were um one of those gangs that formed when the arson started to happen to stop buildings from in their block from getting burnt down. And you really see this sort of transitional pre-crack period when the gangs are ceasing to be like, you know, street gangs of people protecting their neighborhoods from the kids in the neighborhoods next to them and are starting to get more violent. And it's also about probably the absolute nadir of any city in america in american history the Mm. south bronx in the 70s was just i mean even detroit now or st louis now it doesn't come close to um i mean that place looked like the surface of the moon so it's it's rare to even get footage of it like that and it's very rare to have these interviews with these kids are like 15 16 just sitting in their living rooms talking about like the murders they did and Mm. the and the um robberies i've never even heard of this film john yeah, it's just a wonderful movie. I just finished shooting a um, a movie that I directed that we were shooting up in the Bronx, and I had um, the entire cast and crew. I just sent them because Eighty Blocks from Tiffany's is on YouTube. I just sent them the YouTube link and was like, first thing you do is just watch this movie because it's just an incredible like sociological document to have captured. What a great that. title! Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah, a hell of a movie. Very rewarding watch. Uh, very depressing, but you know, short. Yeah, I gotta check that one out. Jenna, you have a uh, a lesser known one. I feel like I, I sort of said all my lesser known ones, so I'll. Yeah. Sell, I, but I do have some other ones because uh, my my first lesser known choice would be Winter Kills, which I mentioned, which right. is that yeah. JFK yeah, assassination yeah. one. Yeah, I gotta check that out. And then you know, I'd even I'd throw Wise Blood in there, which I know we mentioned, but I mean that movie to me it was like if if like Harmony Corrine and Robert Downey Sr. adapted a Coen Brothers movie. Wow, <laughs> it's, it's such a weird movie. That's that quite the combo. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be interested to see what you right, from yeah. Nest. Yep, yeah. yeah, and he's good in it. He's great, but it, it's just a weird. It's so weird. I'd be interested to see what you think of the book. I'm gonna loan you the book. Okay, I'll read it. And then I guess um, let's see. Uh, Don Giovanni came out that year, and. This is uh, Joseph Losey doing just straight up the, the Mozart opera. So <laughs> it's three hours long. It's the whole thing's an opera. There's no, like, they don't pretend. But you know what? I have to say it's shot really well. 
Like it's really watchable. Granted, you have to like have some interest in opera or right. else you're going to fall asleep. But Don Giovanni, I think, is in general a really accessible opera. It's, you know, about a womanizer who then gets dragged to hell by Satan. So, you know, <laughs> that's great. And then, uh, you know, it's this it's just shot so well that they're, you know, they're on uh, actually in Italy, you know, like there's it's just it's really accessible. I feel like it's so rare that you get a movie, a music based movie that is watchable even like, you know, like yeah. even live concerts yeah. are, are shot. That's why um, Stop Making Sense is so fantastic. It like it, it puts you in there. You really start caring about the characters and also the shooting plays, shooting operas can be really tough and like it's it's rare. So Don Giovanni, I think, is one of those uh, really well done, you know, from stage to, to film. Mm. And then uh, maybe a lesser. <laughs> and then this one, I guess I'll sort of just mention because we didn't mention it is Hair came out in 79. Oh, hair, yeah. oh yeah. That's an omission on our part. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Milos Forman, I, which honestly, I think it's very strange that this came out on film so late. Yeah. Because I think even in 79, I, I wonder if it was like a little too late then. Because watching it now, it's it's another one of those movies where I don't really like the play that much, I have to admit. And a lot of it feels dated, but uh, it's shot really well. So if you love if you love the play, especially, there's no reason not to love this movie. And I think even if you're like me and maybe like kind of just half-assed on the play, you're like, yeah, it's all right. The movie actually is pretty engaging. So, you know, there's I that. You, you make a good point about it coming out too late. It, yeah, the, 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 the sort of the window of, of, of that story, the re- it wasn't as relevant. Exactly. And, and a lot but of this... It did come out in 70, 71. Yeah, ex- yeah. It should have come out so much earlier because the play was in the late 60s, I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it makes sense because, you know, there's like a whole song where all they do is like just say bad words, you know, that probably in 79 weren't even that bad anymore, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> mm. You know, it's like, we got nudity on the screen, you know, like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Foreman had the same problem with Man on the Moon, I thought. Like, I think Man on the Moon was just not timed well. If that had yeah. come out, like, maybe five years later, when stand-up comedy was really popular again, might have had a very different reception. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that, too. And then I guess the last one we didn't mention was China Syndrome, which I like. That's a good old Jane Fonda movie. Hmm. Yeah, big China Syndrome. Yeah, I think fan. we talked about it on the break. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we just with, didn't have the one finger. of our podcast guests, the great James Karen, who's still alive in '93, '94. Oh wow, God bless him. Yep, just a wonderful actor. Yeah, he's a wonderful actor who's been acting nonstop since the since the late '40s, and uh, we were thrilled to have him on the show. And he he has uh, proving my wife's point that no matter how how you know less known or obscure the the actor is, they they all have stories to tell. Oh, definitely. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. And, and if you guys have a moment to listen to that episode um, that we did, he tells great ones. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check it out. Including teaching a young Michael Douglas how to drive. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Two, uh, I want to definitely mention before we go, we talked about Manhattan briefly, but I I think that's that's probably one of my favorite Woody Allens right up there with, I guess, Zellig. I think it's his best pure acting, actually, Woody Allen. I think he he taps into something within himself that's like, that, that transcends, uh, you know, what he had been doing previously and transcends everything he did afterwards. Even though, you know, Woody Allen, my favorite filmmaker, I've, I've said it before on the podcast, my most fun as far as digesting an entire filmography. But uh, Manhattan, he does some some really solid acting in that film. And of course, Hemingway is great in it, Muriel Hemingway. Yeah. I, I really like that film a lot. It's his best cinematography too. Oh, by, yeah. By oh, Gordon Willis. Yeah. So gorgeous. Yeah, beautiful to look at. And Might also, be Gordon Willis's best cinematography, actually. Yeah, definitely. Could make a case for that. Well, I mentioned Pennies from Heaven before. 
a movie that came out in, I think, 81 or 82. Mm-hmm. That's another great movie. Yeah, a Steve Martin movie that, that audiences didn't understand and the studio didn't know what to do with. But Gordon Willis, again, take another look at it. Yeah, That's the story of so many 80s movies that, in retrospect, are really good. They just, it's something about that time, the audience just wasn't feeling them and the studios didn't know what to do with them. Yeah. A lot of great movies got lost that way, like Mike's Murder or something, you know. Eyewitness. Oh, Mike's Murder, yeah, another fun one, yeah. Yeah. About that in years. Yeah, it's wonderful. Another Warner Archive one. And Eyewitness with um, Sigourney and William Hurt. I always thought that was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Shame about the 80s. Yeah. (laughs) Phantasm. We'll do uh, do an 80s show down the road sometime. Oh, yeah. yeah. We really got to tap into that. Phantasm, uh, another 1979 film. Which Phantasm, love your heart. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've always loved, I prefer the second one, I'll, I'll say that, but I, I love the first one. It's weird, that, that movie, it keeps going between everybody liking it and everybody hating it. Like, <laughs> when I was maybe 15 or 16, everybody was like, oh, you gotta see Phantasm, Phantasm is incredible. And then, like, a couple years later, I'd bring up Phantasm, I was like, ah, fuck Phantasm. Like, everybody was either, like, dismissing it or, or loving it. I feel like right now, whenever I bring up Phantasm, everyone's like, ah, come on. Yeah, I'm giving you a look now. <laughs> but I, I really do like, uh, especially the the opening vibe of phantasm and the imagery of the 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 sphere and all that stuff it, it really uh speaks to me so uh I, I i would i would suggest phantasm you're the last man standing <laughs> that's right i will always defend phantasm <laughs> and uh one one very very brief one i don't want to give this more than any time whatsoever which is a film called Uh-oh. baby love from 1979 which is a joe damato film oh because of course he you Oof. know directed tons every year but uh that one the only reason i'm mentioning it it's a it's a you know ex- exploitation movie lesbians rolling all over each other naked kind of thing i'm in <laughs> <laughs> but uh my favorite thing about it is uh the opening credits the music that plays over the over the opening credits is like a ripoff of birdland by weather report it's like one of those like sound alikes <laughs> Which is so fascinating to me. Like it, and it's it's barely a sound like they change like maybe one or two notes, and it, it, you have to watch that at least that opening credits. It's kind of hard to find that movie, but man, I I love that fake weather report song because I'm a I'm a big weather report fan. So it's great to hear just some like quasi like wait that's Birdland, but it's not Birdland kind of thing. So uh, at least that opening credits definitely worth listening to. Joe D'Amato was probably pound for pound the most punishing director. <laughs> if you want to go through his filmography, like there's... Oh, yeah. I don't know if there's more, anybody... More Charles Band? It's, he has a lot more than Charles oh, okay. Band is the thing. Okay. Yeah. And they're, yeah, they're very still in a way that the Charles Band ones aren't. D'Amato is, yeah, like if, if you want to just pick a director and pick the least enjoyment you could get out of it, yeah, I would say pound for pound, you're not going to be Joe D'Amato, who's like... 30 million a year and they're all surprisingly long yeah and just wow. punishing punishing <laughs> films yeah that should go on the list of directors not to watch the entire filmography of like him you, you guys will have to do an entire joe d'amato theme show god, oh, god. yeah him and like need Ta- a lot of booze yeah him and like takeshi Mike and like uh Jesus, uh, uh, what's his name? Christ? No, <laughs> no. Um, oh man, I'm forgetting his name now. He died a couple of years ago. It was like Jesus oh, something. Uh, Franco. G- yeah, Jesus Franco, who directed like 
too many movies. He directed <laughs> the movie that has my favorite title in any in of any movie. Um, the rats are coming. The werewolves are here. That's actually pretty great. <laughs> Hands down, my favorite title. <laughs> Terrible movie, but. Last, I'll throw out uh, Escape from Alcatraz and A Little Romance. Oh, right. Totally, oh, right. totally different films from 1979 that are very appealing. Yeah, I forget about Escape from Alcatraz. Good. Don Siegel. Yeah. It's a, it's a good one. That, that's such like a, like a 1999 Sunday afternoon television movie. Oh, yeah. Which is a great <laughs> subgenre, I think. I think the ones that really could, could you know, hold you when it was like kind of a... a a, a lazy day and you were with your family and you all needed something <laughs> couldn't go wrong with any of the don siegel ones does the no, trick it's good it's not shawshank redemption but it's because it's not that ambitious but yeah. it's a very 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 good taut thriller yeah mm-hmm. very just linear and effective you know mm-hmm. it knows what it, it wants to do them, yeah yeah when i'll throw out there just as the best title of 1979 the best actual movie title of 1979 i'm calling it now Ultraman, Great Monster, Decisive Battle. That's a pretty great title. I'm not going to dispute it. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that turn of phrase of Great Monster, Decisive Battle. Uh, that's, a, that's a great thing. Yeah, I'm in it. <laughs> <laughs> All uh, right, we did it. All right, Frank. <laughs> That was <in> 79. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That was a I, lot quite of a films. Few, quite a few we missed, though. I mean, we didn't get to Hardcore. The Wanderers? No. Yeah, didn't, didn't get to The Wanderers. Yeah, barely right? touched um, The Warriors. Big year. A lot of stuff. Oh, people. yeah. That's one oh, you could keep, you could keep going. GI Samurai we forgot to talk about, <laughs> Bush Mama, a lot of stuff. Yeah. Oh, we didn't talk about Over the Edge. Yeah. With, uh, or Norma Ray. Mm. Oh yeah, we missed Norma Ray. We missed uh, the Driller Killer, the Brood, the Hypothesis <laughs> the brood. of the Stolen Painting. The Brood is fantastic. Yeah, I have a soft spot for that one. Or even and this in a malign film, but John Badham's Dracula with uh, with Olivier and Frank Langella. Yeah, Langella's really good in it. He's yeah. he's one of the better Draculas, I think. The movie's a little long, but it's um it's successfully elegant at times. Hmm. Well, and and that said, you, we covered a lot. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> probably talked about 40 films. Yeah, if you're if you're listening at home, writing feverishly, you got a lot of films to check out from this year, definitely. And you all, you guys also have the only podcast in the world that, that ranges from talking about Don Giovanni to Star Crash. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'll take that. Phantasm. So uh, absolutely. Really have, there's a lot of range there. <laughs> <laughs> we pride ourselves. Yeah, Frank, so so much fun. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you, on. guys. I, I hope it was almost worth the technical glitches at the beginning. Oh, definitely. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the Amazing Colossal Podcast, Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. Definitely check it out on iTunes. It's so good. Um, thank you. Yeah, and the guests it. that you get, I think the average age is like 90. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're being generous there. <laughs> That'd be on the young side. Yeah. It's it's incredible podcast, and uh, we thank you for coming on, man. Oh, it's a thrill. Thank you, guys. It was fun, it was fun to be asked, and uh, we'll do it again. All yeah, right. definitely. Tackle the 80s. <laughs> I, I'd like that. Yeah. Or even just a whole show about bad titles. <laughs> <laughs> all That's right, a good man. idea. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Thank you all for listening. See you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>